I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, welcome to Agora Presents, and today we're talking about the formation of the state, and we have an all-star cast of Agora podcasters today. We have, I'll be your host today, and I'm Steve from the History of the Papacy podcast. We have Ben Jacobs from the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast, Brock and Pete from the Lands of Leviathan podcast, and two pretty new members of Agora Podcast member, Eric and Xander of the Reconsider Podcast. And before we get going, maybe each of you can introduce yourself and why you're interested in state formation and how countries and nations are organized. Why don't we start with you, Ben? Sure. Um, I've been into states for a while. I got my undergraduate bachelor's degree in international <laughs> relations. Uh, and in terms of, uh, I guess more broadly, my show is about the early modern period, and the main thing that's interesting about the early modern period is that that's when, that's when all the state formation happened, and we sort of moved from a feudal social organization to a more modern state-centric social organization, and um, that's just been a very fascinating process for me for a while, um, because it's sort of something you don't think of. We just live in it like fish live in water. Brock, um, or Brock and Pete um, from the Lands of Leviathan, that's kind of what your podcast is all about, is political science uh, brought together with pop culture. Uh, where did you get interested in it? And um, both of you have academic training in that as uh, as well, correct? Yeah, that's right. So Brock, and, Brock both Brock and I are uh, political scientists. Uh, we have our undergrads at, in both international relations and political science. I specialize in more domestic politics, so state formation and the state is kind of my bread and butter. Uh, Brock specializes in international relations, so he does um, more of the international thing, but uh, we're both actually now getting more involved into uh, developmental studies, so the idea of how the state comes about, what's what are the characteristics, how the institutions form, are quite important to us because uh, it details how we can develop nations that are less developed at the moment. And, yeah, in our podcast, we try and explain all of this uh, by analyzing things like Star Wars. Uh, so, yeah. 
And then Xander and Eric, you host a podcast that looks at contemporary issues and really looks at issues from multiple different angles and gives a lot of different background on that. Can you explain a little bit about where your interest and um, I believe you have training as well in um, this whole area too? Yeah, Eric's background is in political science. He got an undergrad and master's from MIT and in my background's mainly in uh, economics and finance, but I mean, I also obviously enjoy international relations and stuff like that. From my perspective, what's really interesting about how a country or a state comes to be is the way it develops really influences the way it acts, you know, in a modern time. And when a lot of people talk about the state, they're talking about a very specific, and we'll get into this, Western concept that came about in the last couple hundred years. And you know, the, the systems of regional order and now global order that develop as a result of that notion of a state are obviously related. So once you start having competing ideas of what state or different types of social and international orders are, you have different, implica- uh, different implications. So that's what's interesting about it to me. So, yeah, and I'm, I, since graduating MIT, I've become sort of an armchair political theorist slash philosopher. So I've read a lot about that. Um, and justifications for why the state exists and why it is more just to have a state than not. Uh, and that's that's been tickling my brain recently, so I'm excited to talk about it. So we definitely have a lot of uh, brain power here ready to attack this issue. We might as well just start right at the beginning. And what is a state? And I think maybe we'll have some different opinions on that. But um, maybe let's start with Pete. What is a state? Well, okay, so starting to feel a little bit um, scared now because I'm in the presence of <laughs> such smart guys, guys from MIT. It's crazy. I'm, I'm just at Melbourne University. Um, but so the first thing is I think it's important to delineate what the state isn't. Um, and one of the things that people often get confused is the difference between the state and the government. Um, so you get many different types of governments, obviously. Uh, government is the form of rulership. So you get your democratic government, your um, authoritarian regimes, dictatorial regimes, theocratic regimes that are subject to change all the time. So, uh, you know, America is just about to enter into a governmental change, maybe not that drastically going, its government is going to remain fairly similar, but under new heading. However, the American state is not going to change. And um, I'm sure you guys know that there's a definition of what the state is, according to political scientists, and that is essentially it, it must be a defined territory with a relatively defined population, so a stable population. Uh, the state must be able to enter into negotiations with other bodies that are like itself, so treaties and so forth. It must be able to have administration over the people that inhabit it, so be able to uh, give its citizen rights and papers, passports, things like that. But most importantly, the state and it controls the monopoly of coercive power, uh, which means that only the state, theoretically, is able to control its population through the use of force. So obviously the tools of that is via uh, the police force and the army. The army is used to protect the state from... Um, foreign enemies and the police is used to protect its citizens from themselves. This is all very theoretical, obviously. Um, 
but what that means is is that this you know the state is the only body that can use force against anything within or external to its borders and without that without those general principles then you have things like failed states which is uh, where we get into areas like Somalia which is a, a failed state but that's the very broad definition and the very academic definition of what the state actually is and the states will give that power over to whichever government happens to hold power at that time allowing governments to create policies and institutions as it sees fit in order to reach the ends of the state oftentimes we see the state being defined by the constitution that happens to be in that state so the american constitution in america British common law in England, obviously they don't have a constitution, but they've got a body of laws that defines what their state is. And that those constitutions are usually very um, unmalleable and not not often easily changed. If I could just jump in, I should say that there's, um, there's a certain etymological confusion because we're using the English language. That the word state is used in a, a huge variety of contexts uh, and we're we are talking in terms of political science, but, you know, in terms of philosophy, there's this long history of talking about, like, the church versus the state, which is going to be a slightly different definition of state than when we talk about, like, the United States of America or um, uh, international relations version of states as actors in a chaotic system or things like that. English, in all of its wonderful flexibility, uh, does create some confusion here, so... I very much liked uh, Pete's definition there. That was very good. And so you have that broad... Well, is there um, Eric or um, Xander or uh, Ben, is there anything you'd like to add to that definition? Or do you think it's um, a good working definition? I think it's a good working definition. I think there's probably... It's it's slightly more Western focused, right? I mean, the idea of a state as um, as an entity that has monopoly over power is something that seems more prevalent after sort of, sort of the post-Westphalian world. I mean, you have types of universalist ideas that would you could probably still loop into the state category that would be transnational, and I think you have examples in history where you know you maybe had a more weak central authority like in the um, pre-Republic China and the pre-Meiji Restoration Japan, where a lot of elites actually controlled power, so you couldn't say that the state had a monopoly. But I think more or less, I think it's it's a very good working definition. Yeah, the only thing I'd add is that they're, depending on, <laughs> sort of depending on which political scientist you're reading, um, there are different kinds of organizations of societies and geographic groups of people that aren't states. So obviously there's like forms of anarchism, uh, which isn't the same as like burn down the whole place anarchy. Um, Chomsky <laughs> is a big fan of anarchism as a way of organizing people in a peaceful way. Um, and then there's also, depending on who you ask, uh, they might say that like just strong men or... Uh, certain forms of empire are not necessarily states, um, and some may, you know, some would argue that, like for example, pre-republic China, where you had a lot of uh, territory that was sort of like stuck between these two, um, these two empires, like say between the Mongols and the Chinese, that were like not necessarily reporting to one of them. They may have been extra state or outside of the state. Um, 
So yeah, I think it's just important to have a distinction that not everyone always is living in a state necessarily. You have to have certain preconditions to define the state and uh, and therefore not every you know and then therefore it may change. I think the um, the the Pete uh, ah sorry. I think the piece about being able to negotiate with other states and interact with them in the international stage, I mean, obviously I'm coming from an IR background, um, I'm sorry, I'm coming from an international relations background, so that's pretty important to me, but I think it's an important part of what characterizes uh, state behavior and what starts to make political entities start to act like states, and it's something that distinguishes a state from an empire uh, in terms of uh, what we were just talking about. Uh, because empires usually have this universalist um, attitude that they think that they deserve to rule everything, and if they don't at any given time, that's just temporary. They're working on it. Um, but when empires are confronted with situations where they need to start treating another political entity as an equal in negotiations, then they very quickly start to act like states in a, in a modern international relations system. So I think that's an important part of state definition. And I think to help build. Oh, go ahead, Pete. Oh, thank you. I I think that there's an important point there as well in that there's another dimension to this. I mean, political scientists tend to be very hard-assed when it comes to these definitions. You know, they lay out these very specific definitions and they say, right, if you fit into this category, you're a state. If you don't, you're not a state. And that's as... But it's obviously in the real world, it doesn't work that way. In international relations, a lot of legal scholars deal with de facto and de jure statehood. Um, And that's the fact that if Mm. other states don't recognize you as a state, you are essentially not a state. So there are some good examples of that. Obviously, Palestine is a a fairly good example. It fits broadly the definitions that I've just laid out, except for maybe perhaps the monopoly of coercive power. Um, given that you know there is a huge amount of um, actors within that region who have quite a lot of force, but an- another good example is Somaliland, which not a lot of people know about, which is a very small area within yeah. the Greater Somalia, which does meet all the requirements of being a state, but is not recognised as so by by other states, especially by the most powerful states. And if you're not recognised by the most powerful states, in this case being America. England, many countries in the European Union, China and Russia, you're just not a state. And unfortunately, that's just the way the world goes. So Somaliland is often considered to be a de facto state, but certainly not a de jure state um, in that it's not a state legally. So um, it's interesting that, you know, there's also a, a side of recognition that needs to come into this. Other states have to see you as a state for you to be a state. And I think that lends to the question of what's the line then? You have a culture or a society on, or even a civilization on one side. One side. What makes something a state? Over, it, is it just a definition or this acceptance? Maybe you can speak more to that. And how did the maybe the first state really come about of what we could really call a state? Well, I'd be happy to give uh, like good jump in first, and then have you guys tear my. Uh, philosophy apart because that's an I mean, excellent way to start. <laughs> yeah, as a as a political scientist, I can confirm that we are super hard asses about all of these <laughs> definitions. So I'm just like licking my chops here, ready to go. So yeah, the concept of the state from a philosophical position, you know, is a 
a construct that we have been aiming towards. And, you know, aiming might be a bit of a a strong term because it it shows that, you know, we kind of meant to get there. But it's really the states has come together um, through just political evolution, uh, or at least that's my view on it. So you get, as I said, you get two types of states. You get the nation state and then you get states in general. So the nation state is a homogenous ethnic state. It's what you saw developing in Europe after the Treaty of Westphalia, um, which I'm sure uh, Ben can talk more to. Um, but you know, the the ethnic the ethnic homogeneity of Europe allowed for like the French to form a state and the British to form a state and eventually the Germans to form a state after the breakdown of Prussia. But and for to a large extent, that's what Europe considered. Europe was like, "Yep, that's the that's the state. That's how states work. They're ethnically homogenous." But um, in most of the rest of the world, states aren't like that. So, take for instance my homeland, which is South Africa. There are eleven large ethnic groups and a multitude of other ethnic groups that all make up the one state that is South Africa. Now, to break all those people up into smaller states would be impossible. Um, so. You know they're they're homogenized into one large state, and then you get a whole bunch of other problems like ethnic conflict and ethnic rivalries and things like that. But at the end of the day, I would say that the state is a process by which political power is centralized under one government over a large body of territory. So, uh, you know, points have been made about China a couple of times already in this in this uh, episode. And China is very interesting because China actually started to develop the state in an administrative capacity long before Europe did. Um, Because China, because of its geography and the nature of its ethnic rivalries that it has within the landmass, it needed to have a centralized bureaucracy that could manage all the warfare that was going on. And that's the beginning of the state. The beginning of the state is the centralization of power and the centralization of the administration, which leads to a whole bunch of other things like a meritocratic economic system because you want to hire the best for the job rather than your cousin or your brother or whatever because you might be competing. Um, and there's a, there's a famous quote by Francis Fukuyama, who's one of my favorite political theorists, where he says it was war that made the state, um, but then the state made war. Um, so the state is kind of like an almost, you know, it's an invention of necessity because you need se- political centralization. Yeah, Can I just hop in real quick there? Because um, I think, so in Prussia, and this is interesting because I definitely want to come back to like the unification of Germany and what went on with Westphalia earlier and all that. But there's a reform movement there. But Prussia never broke down, right? Didn't Bismarck, he united the German states uh, sort of through the process of the Austro-Prussian War and then finally with the Franco-Prussian War. But it was, it was the powerhouse of the German state and it's what led all the other states to come behind it in, in the war in 1870, right? It was, it was one of the states of the Holy Roman Empire and it just got more and more powerful until it started competing with Austria, which was the traditional leader of the Holy Roman Empire, and then uh, through Bismarck's maneuverings, brought everyone in line. Right. Yeah, I. so I think uh, Ben brought up a really important distinction that even though the Europeans sort of modeled the state as being somewhat ethnically homogenous, like, oh, it's a people that self-identifies as a group, 
Um, and we get into in-group, back-group theory here and identity politics, which gets like super complicated, but is really important. Um, but it's not necessarily always that way. The histories of most states are accidental rather than deliberate. Um, and, you know, if we look in the Middle East, for example, like Sykes-Picot, it's completely arbitrary, right? There are currently states, most states in the Middle East, like you look at the lines, they're pretty bloody straight, right? And they were drawn by a bunch of old white dudes in Europe in the early 1900s. And part of the problem, um, so, and one of the, one of the benefits of uh, the ethnic group model is that people tend to identify with that ethnic group, so they don't want to kill each other as much. Whereas in the Middle East... Um, you've you've taken uh, ethno well not linguistic but ethno religious groups, um, sectarian groups, and stuffed them together and said like now get along and not only now get along but like we're gonna put the minority uh, religious group in charge and and all sorts of nasty stuff but uh, but yeah it doesn't ha a state doesn't have to be a doesn't have to be like drawn around a group of people that self-identify uh, as part of that state or part of, or, or like with each other. It can be, it, it's usually, or it's often accidental um, or just, you know, like not intelligently designed. So one thing in terms of the nation state, and this is getting into some of that identity politics, and maybe we can use this to transition into the history. Um, the, the nation states of Europe are in, in many ways manufactured national identities. Uh, any national identity is sort of based on a shared collection of, uh, based on a shared identity, based on a shared culture. Um, and um, a lot of the time that culture is based on shared myths and mythology that is somewhat consciously created at some point by someone who's seeking to strengthen the state. <laughs> Uh, in many cases. So uh, to take the example of France, uh, which has come up, uh, there, there was no naturally occurring France. Uh, if you go back to the Middle Ages, uh, northern France and southern France, even to this day, are culturally uh, dissimilar. And back in the Middle Ages, they were very culturally dissimilar. But even within like northern France, there are the Bretons who spoke a Celtic language there are the, the Normans who were descended from Vikings. Um, if you got to Eastern France, you, you have a lot of people who spoke German. Um, so the, the process of state formation um, went along with a, a process of at least semi-conscious uh, national identity creation in most of Europe, where uh, they created standardized dictionaries and said that this is French and it was Parisian French, and they made everyone go to public schools <laughs> and learn Parisian French, and um, not to... There's, uh, there's uh, let's say, uh, evil sides to that, and there's benevolent sides to that as well, and it's, it's, it was a semi-natural and a semi-conscious process, um, which can sort of transition to talking about the history if people are ready for yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, transition. What what's just even using that example of northern France and southern France, we consider France a state, but would each of those components be a state in and of themselves? Not anymore. <laughs> at, at some point would they have been considered that or could if they split would they be considered a state or would they have to meet those other requirements? Well, they 
they would need to meet those other requirements to be considered a state. But to talk about uh, whether they ever were separate states, we get um, basically into a distinction between the modern form of social organization and the medieval or the feudal form of social organization. Uh, and this, I think, to really understand it, we get to the the, dis the concept of the monopoly on force. Because in the Middle Ages, um, there's a bunch of reasons behind this that are fairly complicated. But in the Middle Ages, the central government, as represented by the king, didn't necessarily control all the force. In fact, he was just sort of one mega landlord amongst many. And <laughs> controlling land... Uh, I like that term, by the way. Mega landlord. That's good. Um, controlling land directly uh, translated into military power at that time. And so the king had his army, but it only was one of many armies within the state. Uh, or, I'm sorry, within the political... Uh, it was only one of many armies within the like feudal political entity of the French monarchy. Yeah, basically uh, think Westeros, right? You have a bunch of lords that swear fealty to you, but they all have their own armies. Right. And the part of what made Western Europe into Western Europe was a, a shared sense of cultural identity within the aristocracy and a fairly robust and increasingly robust legal system that made it so... Most of the time, the big landlords would give their uh, loyalty to the king. But that did evolve gradually over the course of the Middle Ages. And when you get back to the beginning of the Middle Ages, uh, particularly right after the fall of the Empire of Charlemagne, you have, you know, in France, five... Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Five mega magnates or more who control different regions and are at each other's throats. Um, and they all, and many of them somewhat loosely owe their allegiance to the king of Western Francia, but he only really controls the area around, like, Paris. Uh, and so there was a, a long period of, of anarchy during the early Middle Ages where these um, local strongmen uh, controlled things and built these ever stronger and ever taller social pyramids uh, within themselves of loyalty. Um, 
but then that sort of settled down when you got to the the high middle ages uh sort of between uh, uh like 1066 is the the convenient cutoff point for english speaking historians between like 1066 and 1300 things started to settle down and um everyone was still at war with each other constantly but war was a very limited thing involving like a couple dozen men <laughs> in most situations uh and um things gradually settled down and the the monarchies particularly in northwestern europe uh were gradually able to start consolidating power i have a question uh ben would you i have my own answer in my head but like the pre-1066 period with that pyramid of higher uh of loyalty and such would you consider western francia a state absolutely not <laughs> yeah okay me neither good that's that's what i was thinking here because i figured everyone's listening be like uh so is that a state definitely not right because it doesn't have the monopoly on violence yeah yeah and okay. the the king of he gradually became known as the king of the franks or the yeah the king of the franks and then eventually the king of the french and he could negotiate with foreign powers but then they the the nobles could also negotiate with foreign powers Right. So you you often got like the Duke of Burgundy, so like the entire Hundred Years' War, for example, uh, was in many ways a three-way fight between England, the Duke of Burgundy, and the King of France. Maybe somebody yeah. and and one of our one of our definitions. Sorry, oh, Pete, uh, Steve, maybe one you is... you can add on to this because it's something that somebody that we've been talking a lot about is what is the monopoly of force or the monopoly of violence or coercive power. Maybe you can define that quickly as well oh sure well the okay so this goes into the philosophy quite a lot um uh, the monopoly of coercive power was first brought about by um thomas hobbes and then expanded on by john locke where it was you know thomas hobbes uh essentially tried to ask how where did the state come from uh, in a book called the leviathan and he developed a very lovely little analogy of the state of nature, which was what the world was like before you had political, before you had politics at all, um, where it was a war of man against every man, because uh, Thomas Hobbes was super sexist. Um, and Life was nasty, he, brutish, and short. Exactly. And um, so basically what happened was that in John Locke goes on to say that in the state of nature, every person is born with the ultimate rights. You have the right to do whatever you want, whether that's to rape, pillage, plunder, steal, or not do those things. But whatever you want to do, you can do. Now, but that also means that anybody in that world also has the ability to do that to you. So it's not a very safe world to live in, exactly what Eric said. It's uh, nasty, brutish, and short. So what happens is a group of people eventually come together and they say, right, we don't want this. It's terrible. We are going to give up certain rights to a sovereign, to somebody who can rule us. And in exchange for giving up those rights to them, uh, they will protect us from other people within our society, which is what we're creating, a new society. The rights that they give up are the rights to commit violence against one another. So, um, so and, in a nutshell, someone's got to be in charge. Yeah. So somebody has to protect us from each other. And that person is who we call the sovereign. So exactly. Somebody's got to be in charge. And But so, if somebody's going to protect us, they have to have the ability to protect us. 
Um, and also there has to be rules governing what we can and cannot do to each other. So what do we do? We give up our ability, our rights to bash on each other, and we give it to the sovereign. Now, of course, the sovereign can misuse that power. Um, and Thomas Hobbes was famous for saying that that sovereign should be a Leviathan, which is where we get my, I get my podcast name from, The Lands of Leviathan, um, and saying that it would be better to live under a ruthless dictator than to not have a ruler at all. Uh, John Locke says that, no, 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 that's bullshit. Um, if, you're, if your sovereign is being uh, dictatorial, you should just depose of them. Um, but that's what the monopoly of coercive power is. Coercive power just means any ability to violently coerce somebody to do something they don't want to do. Um, and the monopoly of that power is just having all that power centralized under one state administration. And that's that's what leads me on to just commenting on what Benjamin was saying um, with, you know, what was happening in France. Were these small little entities states or not in and of themselves? They weren't states because they didn't meet... Uh, the the criteria for the the monopoly of coercive power, although you could say that maybe they did in their own little pockets. But one thing they definitely didn't meet was the centralized administration, the ability to administer over their citizens, because they had certain power over their serfs or peasants or whatever you know in a feudal system you were dealing with. But so did the king. The king could also come in and do certain things. So there was a kind of shared joint administration. Now, obviously, the degree of that administration shifted as political power struggles changed them, sometimes with the king having almost no power and the feudal lords having all of it and vice versa. But at the end of the day, there was no power that had complete administrative control over one specific area. Um, Only once you got that did you really start to get into the territory of what we can call the state. Um, And only so only once the king of France... Um, was able to say, I am the state, this is the government, we have complete control over France, was France an actual state? So I want to come back to Hobbes real quick, because I think, you know, he's this guy who's like, oh, you know, international anarchy, and it's this theory of anarchy that a lot of different realist theories, if you're a foreign policy person, are based on, right? But it's important to remember that Hobbes and Hobbes's theory had a historical context, right? It wasn't just this is something that's sitting in my armchair I came up with, and this is how man, you know, forms societies. He was this guy who just lived through arguably one of, or if not the, you know, Europe's most violent conflict ever, the Thirty Years' War, and it was a war that was based on competing universalist ideas, right? Protestantism, pro- Protestantism, excuse me, we're right. Catholicism. We're right. And it was this really, really bloody conflict largely fought on the German states where there were there was no territorial uh, sort of delineations, right? And that's part of what made it so bloody is there was no respect for territorial uh, for territorial borders in the war. And that's what the Treaty of Westphalia tried to account for. So Hobbes, seeing what happened, tried to he was trying to come up with a theory for organization that allowed for some sort of balancing that would limit conflict. And that's really what the Treaty of Westphalia did. It introduced this concept of the, of the modern nation state that we've been talking about, this idea of monopoly of power that didn't really exist beforehand. You had appeals to universality. You had appeals to some you know, uh, territorial integrity. But that's what Hobbes was trying to come up with. 
Yeah, and I think that I oh God, I love Hobbs so much. And one of the things that that I think Hobbs kicked off was um, was the effort to justify the monopoly of violence um, to his sort of fellow enlightenment group because uh, what was happening at that time was there was this recognition of the natural rights of man um, and and the biggest one being liberty and uh, but at the same time we're saying that okay we're forming these states that have a right to exert the will of the state on others on individuals um, against their uh, against their protestations right like anytime there is a law if you like need the law it's because people aren't otherwise following that thing that you want them to do on their own and the way you get people to follow laws right is you say like look i've got a gun or back then a pike and a dungeon and if you don't do it you're going in the dungeon um and so what was happening was there was this strain of like liberty versus this monopoly on violence and both hobbs and Locke, i think did a did a great job of justifying why the monopoly on violence is actually critical to preserving liberty um, and actually like letting liberty be exercised as opposed to just this theoretical thing that's like really nice, except the guy next door who has a bigger pike than you do is going to come stab you and take all your stuff. Um, and it's different from the... Um, and what's funny is even though both of them write it, write their treatises, so for Locke, it's second treatise on government... Um, in a historical, like as a story, as an historical story, it's of course not how it happened. Like you didn't actually have people come together out of the woods and be like, you know what we should do? We should make a state. It sounds like a good idea. Like that never happened, right? <laughs> humans have always been, humans have always been social creatures. There's always been at least hunter-gatherer level societies. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, what was I going to say? You know, after... You have, after the uh, Treaty of Westphalia, after Hobbes, you know, the question had always been before that, who's in charge? Who's in charge of this part of land? Who's in charge of this part of land? And in the mid-17th century, you at least had this agreement between different types of leaders where they said, okay, you're in charge of that land, and I'm just not going to bother your domestic situation. And that was really a radical idea. And it, do it doesn't seem radical because the entire global order today is essentially formed on the European post-Westphalian order that existed in the late 17th century. But back then, you had really real questions of who's in charge. Is it the monarch or is it this appeal to Catholicism? And does this religion reign in some way that the sovereign doesn't? There was, there was also a very strong political side to that. And just to give an example of what that kind of thing would mean to people on a day-to-day -day basis, um, most people in Europe lived in, in villages in, like, the Middle Ages. Uh, and so your village had boundaries. Uh, but within, you, you would also belong to a parish. And the parish's boundaries for the Catholic Church wouldn't necessarily be the same as your village's boundaries. You could have two churches in your village and depending on where the parish boundary line was drawn, you'd have to go to one church or the other. Then you'd also be within the manor system, which meant that your the land was owned by one of these feudal landlord lords. Um, and again, the manor boundaries wouldn't necessarily be coterminous with the village boundaries or the parish boundaries. So you could potentially have a village that had, you know, three manors, two parish churches, uh, and then as you go through uh, every different bit of social organization within the Middle Ages, uh, a person's life could be split five ways till Sunday, 
And this ended up being important because um, a lot of these entities also had their own legal systems. Uh, um, and you could appeal between the different ones uh, as suited your needs if you were knowledgeable enough about the law to do so. Um, so people's lives were very uh, uh, schizophrenic. <laughs> and if there's another point here as well uh, from a political science perspective is that you know there's a school of thought which I'm very much a part of, but I know that many... American political scientists coming from a more analytical tradition disagree with, and that's Bring political it. evolution. Um, <laughs> so, you know, political evolution is is essentially the idea that you know human politics is evolving continually, and has been evolving since day one. And obviously, as you said, Eric, the um, you know the, the Thomas Hobbes uh, lovely story never actually happened. Human beings have been political from the moment that they first became human beings, and Unlike Hobbes and Locke, we now have the ability to examine what our pre-human ancestors might have been like by looking at the uh, political groupings of our, you know, close cousins, the chimpanzees, and we see in chimps and other higher-order primates that they they also form political units. They form what are called kinship groups, and kinship groups are the lowest anthropological level of social organization. It's basically, well, family is probably the lowest, but you get family, and then families turn into kinship groups, which is you know a larger extended family. And then from kinship groups, you eventually get to tribal levels, and from there you get to like proto-state, feudal systems, and so on, and you keep evolving up. But the reason that we need to keep evolving up is because human beings have a undeniable genetic predisposition to want to continue our bloodlines. And what that means is that we also tend to want to pass on our material and intangible assets to our progeny. Now, that's awesome when you're in a kinship, small little group, and everybody's you know very small and everybody's happy and you're taking care of your family. But when you start to get to higher order levels of social organization, you run into a conundrum where society starts to conflict with your biology in that we are predisposed to want to give to our family first then our kinship group and then everybody else um, but in a society where we might be dealing with hundreds of thousands of people that is obviously not the best way to go we don't want to be redirecting resources from our larger from you know the larger state or the larger feudal system or the larger whatever towards our own family group. So we need to develop some form of central administration in order to account for humans' innate corruption. And we only call it corruption because at a larger social level, that's how we see it. But in actual fact, this is us taking care of our own family first. And that's usually the root of a large amount of corruption in states is people redirecting resources to their own ethnic groups or their own kinship groups. And that's why we evolve. And there is no, uh, you know, there's no predisposition. There's not, sorry, there's no predetermination to this. We aren't sitting around as human beings and saying, right, we need to reach the state so that we can get there. We are faced with things like necessity. So war usually leads to much better administration of states because it necessitates meritocracy, it necessitates better use of resources, um, and that's one of the reasons why Francis Fukuyama says war made the state. In places that are highly resource-rich, 
an acro- you know it, 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 there's a conundrum when where you actually see a higher level of corruption it's what we sometimes call the resource curse so in places like angola where there's enough natural oil to basically pay for everybody to have a very comfortable middle class lifestyle you also have a very high level of corruption um because there has never been a need for that state to develop high administration capacities obviously that's a very unilinear explanation for corruption but that's one of the reasons why we continually develop this administrative capacity yeah i I, yeah i think that the so despite being a american analyticist um i actually super agree with the evolutionary model of state formation and the it's funny the way i was framing it was like slightly differently because i was thinking i guess it's because i'm an ir guy first or an international relations guy first because i was looking externally where if we um you know if we think about the anarchy of the world as a um natural selection mechanism for different societal uh structures if you have let's imagine you like through the random amblings of time developed like a group of people developed a higher um, like a more administrative uh, structure that was like a state and therefore like could muster more resources and people to do stuff. Um, and then like some other group of people or some other area did not. What's going to happen is that more structured group is going to be able to dominate the latter group. And obviously like pre the industrial revolution, people were kind of always on the edge of starvation all the time, right? Population was controlled basically by starvation um because like people would be born and then be like oh god we don't have enough food they die otherwise the population keeps growing until you till you reach that so because of that there's a constant competition for resources um and it was actually like necessary to use force against other human groups uh in order to get resources for your kids so basically in short you have some uh some groups of people or some areas develop this stronger administrative model and then they're able to dominate the other group um and then the other group's model does not continue on so it's actually evolution much like genetic evolution that states happen to emerge from this natural selection process and this like boiling pot of fighting for resources yeah i mean that's one of like the fundamental uh goals or roles of a of like a central administration or bureaucracy right it is to extract resources from a disparate wide uh, reaching geography and organize that into some sort of system of defense uh against external groups so and this is backed up i should well so there's two things first we should probably say we're not defending social darwinism (laughs) Uh, no, no that was not, not. That was no. not the point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, if this anybody is, thought that, no. <laughs> no, because it's not. Well, it's not an argument of like good, bad, or that you, or that like a certain group succeeded because it had like some superior genetic traits or something like that. I mean, Guns, Germs, and Steel is the book you need to read because there are like structural forces for like why, um, you know, there there are structural causes behind like why, you know, in Germany, for example, like why the um of the like the many little tiny fiefdoms like the prussians were the ones that happened to to, you know steamroll and others didn't but it's not like the you know the prussians were like genetically superior yeah yeah yeah. anyway structures right yeah not genetics so the second the second point is that um this what we've been discussing has been more theoretical and philosophical and it is backed up this part is backed up by a 
the historical process. Oh, it's always so nice when that happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, speaking broadly, all the political entities in, uh, in, in Europe were engaged in a constant sort of low-level war, but in the feudal uh, Middle Ages, we're talking pretty small armies of, like, dozens or hundreds of people in any given conflict. Not a lot changed, usually. Uh, but as this conflict happened, um, some side or another would come up with some advantage or another, uh, and the, the groups that were able to incorporate it faster into their system generally did better. Uh, and this also included political issues, because, um, you know, if the the Duke of Anjou or whatever came up with some awesome new military battlefield tactic uh, within the political system of medieval Europe. He was constrained by how far he could go, um, and ultimately the, the King of France would end up absorbing his uh, his uh, innovation. Um, but what happened is that these bigger political entities, in addition to sort of trying to centralize their power by conquering all the smaller political entities, um, also started to bump up against each other. So the, the classic example is the Hundred Years' War uh, between, like I said, uh, Burgundy, France, and England, um, which uh, created this several centuries long conflict. Um, you know, the Hundred Years' War eventually ended, but then there were other wars and other wars, um, and the logistical and tactical way that war was conducted gradually began to change in a way that was more expensive, uh, which required these political entities to do more, to gather more money in order to just um, maintain what they already had, let alone try and conquer the other guy. Um, and to a large extent, this process culminated, um, well, this process involved entities like England uh, gobbling up their neighbors, uh, like France managing to centralize its authority more or less. Um, this process then hit uh, the... and it culminated and was disrupted by the events of the Protestant Reformation and the Thirty Years' War, where all of a sudden the shared cultural values that had tied together the European aristocracy were shocked by a change in cultural values and a need to recognize uh, someone who wasn't conforming necessarily to the more explicitly stated cultural values of Christianity uh, as we saw, as I see it. Not me particularly, but, you know, as our side sees it. Um, and the, the Thirty Years' War was uh, the culmination of the, the wars of the Protestant Reformation to a large extent, uh, which we've already talked about, but one of the things that I think is important to note in terms of the Thirty Years' War is that it was uh, a political as much as a religious event. Oh, um, totally. The, the, the states within... It happened mostly in Germany because Germany was the Holy Roman Empire and it had all these... At that point, it hadn't centralized quite as much as France had. Uh, and each of the little feudal princedoms had the ability to make a decision as to which side they were going to support. But then there was also the centralized authority of the Habsburgs uh, over the empire. And so it, it was basically a German civil war that gradually ramped in the French and the Swedish, uh, the, the Danish, and um, 
a third of the German population died, according to some estimates. Um, and a lot of that was also due to just the um, early nature that the states had reached. Um, they were hiring these massive uh, mercenary armies to fight uh, these large-scale infantry war engagements, which is where the tactics and strategy had evolved to. But they didn't have the logistical backup quite yet. They were pushing the limits of what they could do because this was viewed as an existential crisis for everyone involved. They were pushing the limits of what they could financially support. So a lot of times the mercenary armies were wandering around in Germany and they had no other way to get food but to steal it. And so then the population starved to death. Um, and, and that's sort of a lot of what happened in the Westphalia Treaty that ended the Thirty Years' War was an attempt to, as has been said, prevent that kind of thing. Um, and it did it by giving all these political entities solid, uh, equal characters, uh, essentially, rather than yeah. putting them in part of this weird feudal matrix. Um, but then the, the flip side of that is that the ones who'd survived the war were the ones who had the logistical power to to a certain extent, pay their mercenary armies, uh, pay by artillery, by ships, uh, and compete in this, uh, you know, blood match, <laughs> uh, death match arena battle. I think you make a great point, which is that the Thirty Years' War was a political and not just a religious conflict, right? Because you had Protestants, Catholics, but France entered the war basically on the Protestant, Protestant side. God, I can't say that word today. Because you had Cardinal Richelieu, who was basically one of the first European practical realists, and he said, well, we need to focus on our national interest, despite his affiliation with the church. And everyone said, you're crazy. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, from his perspective, he was much more worried about the Habsburgs, who controlled both Spain and the Holy Roman Empire, and a large part of Italy, actually, um... He was much more worried about them surrounding France and taking it over uh, than he was about Protestantism, which in his country he had under control at that point. Yeah, I think with um, with the uh, Protestants, it really is the Reformation. Martin Luther was looking to reform things religiously. And, I mean, if you look at the 99 theses, most of them were pretty good things that the Catholic Church should have been doing anyways. It was really when he hooked up with some nobles who wanted independence in their own sphere. The religion was a very convenient way to differentiate themselves from other nobles who they wanted to fight with. Martin Luther was in the position of needing someone to protect him from the justice of the Catholic Church. The German nobles were in need of some justification for breaking away from the Holy Roman Empire and the constraints of the Constitution as they saw it. Yeah, it was a very convenient partnership. Yeah, and I think that and this is a good. This is actually like a good case study of uh, the the issue of forming a state and getting the um, like getting the like sufficient consent of people that you're trying to govern. Um, and a lot of it's based on, uh, you know, a lot of it's based on your identity, right? So what, you know, what happens is, because if you think about the evolutionary model that we talked about earlier, it's sort of like, well, why don't bigger states just keep gobbling up smaller ones until 
you just have one like global superpower or continental superpower or something like why are there you know why does europe still have a whole bunch of different states and the trick there i think from a practical perspective of forming a state is is that there has to be a shared identity um, because you need people to look around and be like, oh, okay, like these other people that are making decisions and imposing laws on me, they share maybe my values or I identify with them in some way. Like I feel like I'm kind of part of the group and I'm willing to put up with this. Um, and so a good a good example is like Peter was talking, I think Peter was talking earlier about the French national identity propaganda machine that was, okay, we're a whole bunch of different French people, especially North and South, but hey, we're all France. Like, we've got this shared language. We've got, look at this, you know, like, look at these story, these historical stories and myths that tie us all together. Um, and so what, you know, happened through that evolution is that to carve these states, you had this identity build, and it actually made it really hard for other states to just come in and say, okay, you're with us now. Um, because everyone else would be like, wait, no, we don't want to be ruled by you. You're totally different and not like us at all. And, um, and they would resist that. So that's why Napoleon had such a hard time, uh, in Spain and even some of like Italy and the Netherlands. Um, and I think also it's part of the driver for my, you know, like my understanding is what we're talking about is that that sense of identity was a major driver of the 30 years war. Um, and why you had like continued resistance to the Habsburgs and the Holy Roman is Empire. That is that related to the concept of social contract? I, yeah, great question. Um, certainly it's the case that, so social contract is Rousseau's way of uh, justifying the state and its you know capacity to coerce individuals to... Um, uh, to do stuff. And it's basically saying, look, there's a general will and, uh, well, sorry, let me back up. Rousseau is basically saying, look, there is a social contract. If you want to be part of society and get all of its sweet, sweet benefits, including, for example, like police that will plausibly come and bail you out if you're getting robbed and uh, a military, which will like plausibly stop other countries from coming and, you know, just like burning your you know farm down and eating all your stuff. If you want all this stuff, you have to be on board with some of the costs. That's the contract. You're making a deal, you're paying something, you're getting something out of it. And so I think, yeah, that's his model of what does this consent, you know, like why should you consent and what is the basis of that consent of saying, okay, I um, look at, uh, you know, I, I look at this government body and they're, you know, they're ruling me and I'm fine with that. And I think one of the ways that he... Uh, differentiates what is um, like what is a legitimate ruling body and what is not a legitimate ruling body is this thing called the general will, which is basically like, hey, look, we kind of have an amalgam of what people need and want, and and it creates this general will by this society for the direction that the the society is going to go, um, and so if you have this like very fragmented nation. Um, like if it's an empire of a whole bunch of different peoples, you can't form a single general will. Um, you have these like different little general wills of these different groups that like really want to be separate from each other so that they can exert their general will on themselves and not have it exerted from others. So I think, yeah, Steve, that's a great point. I think that Rousseau, like Rousseau models this pretty well. But also, the, you know, the social contract is not necessarily the same as 
national identity. Um, so, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Rousseau as a as a as myself. I don't agree with a lot of his philosophy um, because. Uh, largely because I think that, I mean, the general rule is an interesting concept, but one that's very difficult to actually make workable in terms of practical politics. I, I um, agree with that. Yeah. So, I mean, the social, I mean, obviously Thomas Hobbes and John Locke were also social contract theorists in that, you know, they spoke about this agreement between you and the state uh, or you and the sovereign in making that, you know, that idea, I won't kill people, uh, you protect me and we'll all be fine. Obviously, it doesn't work that way necessarily as simple, simply as that. But I think what's more important is what we were talking about earlier is this idea of what is essentially nationalism, a national identity. And the term nationalism has gained a very negative connotation, basically, with good reason, um, since the Second World War. We don't like nationalism anymore. Um, but that's what... Uh, national identity is nationalism. It's a sense of shared identity with people who live inside your state. Um, and these days, you know, a country and a state have become at least legally synonymous. So when we look at a country like South Africa, there are different ethnic groups. But And it's only a quirk of history that Botswana and South Africa are not the same country. Or, you know, up until, what, the 1980s, 1970s, Namibia was part of South Africa, was a protectorate of South Africa, which was on its way to becoming part of the the South African state. It was only taken away from us because, uh, obviously, apartheid was really bad. Um, But the... If you speak to to a Namibian and you ask them about their national identity, they will have quite a difficulty in describing it to you. But if you ask them about their national identity as opposed to South Africans, suddenly that becomes a lot easier. There's a there's a strong sense of a South African identity, a Botswanan identity, and I'm only speaking about Africa because it's a context in which I I know. And Africa is an interesting example because there aren't there is no such thing as the nation state. In Africa, there is no nation state except for possibly the uh, the Egyptians. But even then, I would say that nation state is very difficult to define, given all the ethnic groups that live in the south. Um, but those national identities are there, but also very weak when compared to Europe and, to a certain extent, America as well, and other first world or developed countries. If you look at Australia or um, New Zealand, they all have a very strong sense of national identity, which they're very willing to defend, um, whether it's in sporting or whatever. Africa and a lot of developing states don't have that. It's one of the things that when when we're trying to develop a state, we try and implement is an idea, a, a sense of national identity, a sense of pride in one's country, or at least a sense of belonging to the identity group. Obviously, you have to tread a very fine line between in you know the in group out group kind of thing between have being pride of your own nation and that translating into hatred of other nations um and i think you know i don't know if you guys would agree with me but as an outsider looking at america i think america is a very interesting example because america has a strong sense of national identity when you speak to americans but 
America is also made up of so many different types of people. You know, essentially, you know, you've got all the thirteen original colonies which have, um, which have developed in their own way. And I, I, the other day, I was, I think I was watching Fargo again, and just thinking about how different the people in like Minnesota must be from uh, people in California, but still have a strong sense of themselves as American. Whereas in, uh, you know, in a country like South Africa, without an external influence, um, a white person might consider themselves as English or Afrikaans first and only South African second. Yeah, I, so I grew up in Los Angeles and half my family is from sort of this West Coast and uh, like Northeast area. And the other half of my family is from very rural North Carolina. And there's a lot of differences. And there, there's still some overarching like philosophical similarities, right? This this appeal to self-determination, the individual's right, like things that just cut across party lines, right? That said, if you talk to people who are from certain parts of the country, and uh, for example, I worked with a, a guy who is from the Deep South in Mississippi, there, there really are distinct cultural identities here. And while I think you can appeal to you know, self-determination and the right of the individual so far, there is that cultural tension. That certainly exists. Um, that said, like, we're, we're talking about nationalism is potentially a bad thing and it, you know, resurging in America. I think it's resurgent in all the West, right? You see it in England, this desire, or Great Britain, sorry, this desire to continue to separates its identity from the rest of Europe where it feels like it's losing a little bit of its sovereignty. You see it in France with uh, Le Pen. You see it in Greece. So I, I think it's a larger trend right now in the West, certainly, than just the United States. But if we're talking just about the cultural distinction here, yeah, it exists. But there's still things, there's still philosophies, I think, that tie the majority of Americans together, even in moments of great divisiveness like this, which is why when you see Donald Trump come out and sort of browbeat the parents of a fallen soldier, uh, you see people on both sides of the party begin to say, wait a minute, you know, like that's, we, you know, we appeal to like a, something bigger than than antics like this. That's not right. That's mm. That doesn't feel like it fits in our society. Yeah. And I, I think that... The, Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I just, I, that, I think it raises such an interesting point with regards to the state. Because, like, we've spoken about it a couple of times before in what international relations we call the anarchic nature of the international state system. That anarchy is becoming less and less, slowly, but it's, it's getting there. You know, as we form international rules and guidelines about the way human beings need to interact with each other and... I, you know, Brock hates me, I think, sometimes for this, but I tend to be very optimistic and idealist about the way we're heading as as a species. You know, I'm hoping we're heading for like a Star Trek unified government of utopia. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, as as we become more interlinked and we, we develop these rules and regulations that govern us as humans, you know, Universal Declaration of Human Rights and whatnot, we are seeing the dissolution of state borders. And I think probably Europe is such a good example of this with the European Union getting more and more control over what was originally state stuff, you know, state laws. Only states could make these these rules. And suddenly the European Union's got their fingers in all those pies. And to people whose identity is based around their national identity or their nationalism, that's 
I can imagine that that's pretty fucking scary. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's understandable, you know, obviously not commendable and obviously should be, uh, stopped, but it's understandable that people respond with anger to, you know, what they perceive as a threat against their national identity. Um, and, and that's maybe why we're seeing this like strong swing towards, um, a bit more national, like, you know, nationalism has so many different ways it can go now, you know, it's it's almost become a catch-all term, but at least it's right-wing nationalism. Pretty fucking scary, by the way, a technical political science term. (laughs) I think this is a good... Yes, I think so. It's in a textbook, I'm sure. This is a good way to go into the next step is, what is the future of the state? There's always been transnational or trans um, geographic things like say religion or um, banking corporations does the state become more powerful or do these now that there's even more ways to connect with people who uh, think similarly to you or who have uh, similar philosophies with the internet and social media and that sort of thing does that change the state at all maybe Ben you can address that first uh such such a huge question i I think the state is going to remain relevant as an international uh, actor and in people's lives um but i think it's getting set within a um certainly internationally as as pete just said there's increasing power in um supranational organizations uh, this has been going sort of since World War II, but it's getting more and more obvious, I think, to people's lives. And um, there's also the issue of just globalization right now, uh, where the economic things that let us do what we do um, are moving past state boundaries um, into sort of a space that's beyond state boundaries. Um, there, I think a big challenge for people going forward is going to be finding ways to make these um, transnational forces responsive to the needs of the individual. Um, And if that doesn't happen, then this process is going to get reversed. Um, But that said, things like the internet are undermining the basis of the state to a large extent. So... um, it's always impossible with political science to make real predictions that are in any way solid. But um, I, I would say that you know the, the state, at least in the short and medium term, is going to remain relevant. In the long term, uh, like Peter, I'm rather optimistic that we're going to have uh, food replicators and live in the Federation and uh, all this stuff. I hope so. <laughs> um, but uh, that would be a very, very gradual process whereby... Um, effective and responsive international institutions um, gradually usurp power from the state but that's going to have to be a process that people willingly give that that power away um, and it's not going to be short it's not going to be a short process in our notes eric mentioned something about the um the caliphate and it makes me think about where um in the middle ages and before people thought of themselves living in the caliphate or Christendom, even before they um, identified with their locality. Is that something that could come up again, that people think of themselves living in this bigger idea before they're um, American or Canadian or Australian, or is that gone? 
I mean, you're seeing it to a certain extent in the EU, uh, and I think, despite the current troubles, I think I tend to think that the EU is going to strengthen long term. Mm. But that said, if the EU strengthens, then the EU becomes the state, and you know, just like the EU, the United States government <laughs> is the state and not the, the state of Rhode Island or whatever. Um, long term, you know, when when you're talking real international bodies, that's the mechanism by which that happens uh, is is much more opaque. Yeah, I think 52% of the UK population would disagree with you there. I mean, there are definitely trends towards larger state consolidations, but I think we're also seeing a lot of pushback on this from lots and lots and lots of people saying, no, actually, I identify with my nation, and that's the primary source of social organization here. Yeah, that, I think that, that happened with the, with state formation too, though. I mean, the the process by which um, the Bretons became French was fairly coercive, and uh, you know the 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 whole process of everyone going, well, we share this French language, that involved a lot of forcing people who didn't speak French to go to school and you know not speak their native dialect and get told that they were awful and bad for for speaking Octian or whatever, um, mm. which many people still resent. <laughs> So there's a coercive aspect to this process of centralization. That's a fair point, and I think the distinction is the EU does not have a military coercive power the way that a lot of these centralizing forces did in the 14th, 15th, 16th century. And that's – but I think that's the interesting thing is – I mean, if anything, my analysis of, of the Brexit votes, you know, I, I don't want to get into all the nitty gritty stuff, but I would say it's a it's a reaction. It's it's reactionary to what is happening. It is, it, you know, it's it's kind of like the last whale bef- before you lose the battle. Um, they, the European Union is, I, I I imagine, is going to still be here for a very long time, and I agree with Ben. It's going to keep growing. Um, you know, from what I've been reading, a lot of British people now feel that perhaps they made a mistake when they left the European Union. Um, that remains to be seen. But this process of the state formation and the eventual, you know, the eventual demise of the state, which I mean, I don't know if you can call it a demise. It's the evolution of the state, as as Ben said. The you know the the European Union will eventually start having its own it's you know it, it in the 1970s it was considered unthinkable that the European Union would have the political power that it has today I, I think it's just a matter of time before the European Union starts to I mean matter of time being in the next like 50 years or maybe a hundred years starts to look at having its own armed force and having its own military organizations um, that's definitely not outside of the realms of possibility, in which case the European Union becomes a federalized state with the previous European states being federal members of that parliament. Um, that being said, however, if this process of consolidation does not democratize properly, which is one of the biggest problems with the European Union, is that it is not democratic. It's a technocratic organization run by economists, the council and the commission can essentially overrun parliament and not many Europeans get involved with the election of parliamentarians to the European Union because of that fact. So unless there's more accountability between the people and these large organizations, then eventually you will start seeing the rollback 
towards to back to a state centric system because that was the last time that people felt that they had control over their own political lives but that being said i think that hopefully this it, you know what's happening at the moment will wake people up it will wake the leaders in europe up to know that the european union needs to have some kind of reform it needs to democratize as well as other institutions as well you know the other trade agreements that are going on around the world need to have some input from the people in general and not just high level elites because if they don't then the people won't accept them and they'll lose their legitimacy so i actually have a very different prediction for the future of the state in the next 50 to 100 years um and it's funny i've been listening to this going like am i totally off base but it's yeah, podcast go so i'm gonna here's this here's here's this angle of it um I think we're being very Europe-centric uh, to some extent when we think about the international order. Because it's like, oh, we have the EU. It's like, well, there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. And um, I actually think that a lot of these other forces, it's these international forces that I think threaten the European Union and are also going to threaten um, other other like presu- you know, presumptive international like super, you know, like uh, meta-states or whatever we're going to call them. Um, I think the European Union, its its existence was made possible by a massively unipolar United States. So we might call the United States the Leviathan in this case, in the international anarchy, where you know the United States comes by and is like, all right, you know, Europe, two thousand years of warfare, we're tired of it, we're so big, so predominant that if anyone causes any trouble, we're gonna you know whack you on the head with a stick. And everyone's like, okay, fine. And it's it's a good fences make good neighbors thing or it's like it's easier to get along with your neighbor when there's a police force right you don't have to be afraid so europe was able to like get along because of that and they were like you know the french and the germans who had been at each other's throats for hundreds of years so it would be like okay fine uh maybe we'll just maybe we'll just be friends and like you can trade us beer and we'll trade you wine and it'll be great um i think there's a risk that as the united states if in particular if the united states chooses to become more isolationist which um, there's a couple of presidential candidates that are looking that way. And it's also the fact that, like, the United States isn't as hugely predominant anymore. Russia is starting to rise again. Um, China is obviously rising to some extent. And I think as the unipolar nature of the global order becomes more multipolar, I think that unless mm. you have a national identity or unless you have an identity that, like, binds people from smaller states together into bigger states... Um, well, I guess that's they would be states anyway. What's my point? My point is that these people who share <laughs> this, my these people who share this identity and therefore are in a state, are going to start looking around them like they're going to start like you know clinging to their guns and looking around them, going like, oh god, the world has gotten dangerous again, and we have to look out for ourselves. Like we're going to re-enter this state of anarchy due to, or of greater anarchy due to the pressures of a multipolar international order. Um, and I think that's going to make it a challenge for uh, people to say, like, you know what? I'm not worried about being German or French or Italian. Um, we're all just going to get along. It's going to be great. I think they're going to start going, like, oh, it's getting dodgy out there. And, like, we better we better hunker down. And so that's that's what I predict. And if I'm wrong about the structure, like, if the United States becomes more predominant, which George Freeman thinks because he thinks that Russia and China are going to have demographic collapses um, and that the EU is going to stagnate, so that the United States is basically going to be like the good house on the bad uh, in the bad neighborhood. Um, if that happens, the United States becomes more predominant. It does leave space for uh, Europe to experiment with 
ending nationalism long term? I um I, I have a, a slightly different, I mean, uh, analysis of the EU's formation. Different is good. Mm. The I, I think the EU was. Um, the U.S. definitely had a lot to do with the formation of the EU, but so did the USSR. Mm-hmm. Um, and having Russia be scary, uh, and having Turkey be Turkey right now, um, these are things that aren't necessarily going to drive the EU apart, but maybe will create another, which is always very important in forcing groups together. But um, I, I do think in terms of um, non-European things that are going on, I think we've mentioned a couple times the artificial nature of colonial uh, or post-colonial state boundaries in like the Middle East and Africa. Uh, I think we're also seeing the artificial nature of those boundaries come under extreme assault right now. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't think that that's going to mean that states go away in those regions, but I think there's going to be a reshuffling of those boundaries that's going to be rather significant. And chaotic and involve a lot of death of innocent people, which is unfortunate. Does anybody else have anything to add? Well, I'd just like to add... Sorry, go Zanda, and then I'll go. Sure. I was just going to bring back, because we've mentioned it a couple of times now, and we haven't really dug into it a whole lot, and I won't get into too much detail, but, you know, this concept of a caliphate, right? You know, a, a caliphate is essentially this appeal to a universal idea, a dogma, a social ordering that needs to exist everywhere if the ideology is to be internally consistent. And, you know, that hasn't really existed in a, in a large force for a couple of hundred years in a way that has really threatened existing social institutions, but it is emerging again in the Middle East. And that's a big part of why you're seeing a breakdown. A lot of, a lot of really astute observers and analysts have compared what's going on in the Middle East right now to the Thirty Years' War in Europe, where borders matter less than these overarching ideologies. So I I think that while you may see a trend back towards nationalism in some areas of the world, you may see a trend away from the concept of a nation-state back towards this idea of universality. And that could threaten threaten order in a lot of parts of the world. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's... (sighs) What's happening in the Middle East now is it's very easy to, I mean, it, no, it's not easy. It, it's it's normal to look at it with alarm and be, you know, quite quite you know quite scared and alarmed by what's going on. But I think it was Eric who spoke about the Treaty of Sykes-Picot uh, earlier, and when you start to zoom out um, in from a historical sense of what's happening in the Middle East, the Middle East has be, was largely stable for six, seven hundred years, um, and only with the first and second world wars was you know the Ottoman Empire was destroyed and the British and the French got involved and everybody kind of messed it up. Um, so, from a historical standpoint, it's a, there's been a period of destabilization in the Middle East that is you know continuing to this day. And I think what we, my interpretation of what's going on would be that what we're seeing is an attempt to restabilize politics in the Middle East. Now, at the moment, one group is trying to reform a caliphate, which has existed in that region before. But I would say that the, the state, not necessarily the nation state, but the state as just a organizational tool supersedes 
that of a caliphate in just in the ability to produce goods and services and provide a good life for its citizens. And if that's the case, then there are economic factors that just come into play. So let's imagine that a caliphate is established in the Middle East. And, you know, worst case scenario, it's ISIS who leads that caliphate and they manage to continue, at least seize a large percentage of it. If they continue their conflict against the West or any other states, that is a conflict that they will likely lose, especially if America or China or Russia gets involved. If they decide to not continue that conflict and just reside within there, it is unlikely that that form of social organization will outperform those in that of the state that exists elsewhere in the world, which means you'll have economic push and pull factors, pulling people out of that region to to seek better jobs and pulling, you know, pulling better ideas into that system. So I think that the, the state exists today as the predominant system, largely because it is the best at pro- at pro- providing the quality of life that we want at this moment. Not to say that there wouldn't be a better system coming about. And that's the reason why when you look at Africa, Africa's had the opportunity to discard the idea of the state multiple times. Uh, when the you know when the independence movements gained independence in the 1960s all the way up to the 1970s, you had a conference of leaders um, who came together to discuss what to do about the states in Africa, because they knew that they were facing huge problems because you had these artificially created states, and the conclusion was to leave the states as they were, because otherwise they feared that Africa would degenerate into ethnic conflict. Um, and we've had an example of that with uh, North and South Sudan. You know, the idea was that as soon as you split the North and South Sudanese along state boundaries, it would allow them to enter into negotiations with each other. But in fact, what it did was turn a regional conflict into an international conflict. Um, and at the moment, what African a- African states are doing um, is turning turning away from, you know, a large amount of conflict and turning much more towards economic means of gaining um, stability. And, you know, the media doesn't report on Africa that much. So, But, you know, what you're seeing is places like Uganda just pouring huge amounts of money into education systems rather than dealing with um, a larger, you know, larger political issues, trying to form up the, the basis of the state administratively rather than um, continually struggle against you know, what might actually be the best form of political organization that we have at the moment. Yeah, I think that's one way to interpret it. I think some other folks would say that, you know, the form of the nation state that exists in the vast majority of the world right now was essentially exported from Europe in the 17th century through the colonial period. And that's a big part of why it exists. And it has proliferated to such a degree, not necessarily because it's more economically efficient. Yeah, you could say that, but you could also say the same thing. I mean, penicillin was also exported to the rest of the world, uh, but it's still, a, you know, a good medicine. Um, so, you know, yeah, I mean, there's arguments to be made on both sides, I think. But I, I think there, there comes a point where you have to start looking at just the basics of the state um, and say, like, you know, a centralized admin. If you just look at the state and say it's made up of a centralized administration, and, uh, you know, the monopoly of coercive power, these are ideas that perhaps are not European. They just got to Europe first, but they might be human 
they might be universal in their in their idea. You know, every human could come up with these. It just happened to happen in Europe first, um, and it's. I think. I mean, China is. You know, China has definitely taken its own stance on the state, but it still meets the criteria for a state. Totally. Well, I think that. Um does anybody else have anything they'd like to wrap up? Because I think we've brought in a lot of questions, and I'd like to actually open this up to the audience um, when you're listening. If you have any questions, to definitely email us, and we might uh, we could probably continue this conversation again for sure because I think we've really just scratched the surface. Yeah, I think we should definitely have a follow-up episode on this. Hey, guys, any, jo- any jokes? We got any jokes? <laughs> Uh, I, I don't. If you have state-related <laughs> jokes, send those in, and we'll share those on the on the follow-up. <laughs> and all thirty people in the world who understand them yes. will laugh. <laughs> S- yeah, send us send us those country ball jokes. I love yeah. those. The ones on nine gag. Oh, I've got a I've got a good joke from some anarcho syndicalists. <laughs> I know. I hang out with some weird people. They say, "What do you call thirty statists in a pit?" A good start. (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible. (laughs) Guys, it's been a great, um, a great conversation. If you'd like to learn more about uh, the lands of Leviathan, the Wittenberg to Westphalia, reconsider podcasts, or even the history of the papacy, you can go to www.agorapodcastnetwork.com. You can email us there, follow everyone on Facebook, and um, everything else social media-wise. Definitely send those questions in because we can use those questions to do a part two of this episode. I thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.